Uh, just a few weeks ago, we took the youth, uh, the students here at Redeemer uh, Bowling, and it was a good time. There was lots of laughing because uh, basically there was lots of gutter balls, so there was lots of laughing. I don't know if most of you probably don't know this, but when I was in my early 20s, I was selected uh, to be one of 10 on the Canadian Olympic bowling team. I'm just kidding. Uh, my kids are in the front row like, what, Dad? How's this never, how's this never come up? Uh, so anyways, I threw a lot of gutter balls. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of laughter. The thing with throwing gutter balls, of course, is that basically bowling, for those who don't bowl, is like, it's just a, it, it's fun because it's basically a goal, uh, an effort to not be terrible. And you throw a gutter ball, and then you're overcorrecting, and you throw a gutter ball inevitably on the other side. I mean, it's just what happens. Isaiah, my oldest son, started, he threw a couple strikes. And when he threw a strike, it was like this anomaly, and, and he started saying, underground bowling club. And so it was like the secret that he was a part of this underground bowling club. And, and, but, of course, nobody could verify it because the rule, the first rule of underground bowling club is you don't talk about underground bowling club. So uh, all gutter balls everywhere. We've been going through um, a series this, this October on the reforming grace of God. And we've been looking back at the Reformation, which took place 500 years ago this month, October 31st. And during the time of the Reformation, the church was throwing lots of theological gutter balls. And the teaching was in the gutter. It was dim, it was wayward, it had really deviated greatly from Scripture. We talked about that last week as we examined the first sola of sola scriptura and the, the gift that God's word is to us and to our lives. And this week we're going to look at sola gratia, which is grace alone. Uh, this beautiful uh, uh, teaching that recovered the gospel 500 years ago as the church, you know, the reformers were really wrestling with the teaching, saying, I think we've thrown some gutter balls here, guys. And, um, you know, in the words of uh, theologian uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he said that, you know, when somebody lives a life in legalism and uh, they try and correct this, this idea of a legalistic Christian life, Christian life, they swing into the other gutter of lawlessness and Sinclair says it this way, it's like their theological battle cry is, oh blessed condition, live as I wish and enjoy sin's remission, which of course is not Christian faith. Paul never taught that, the apostles never taught that, that's not freedom in Christ, that's lawlessness. And so uh, during the Reformation, the church was predominantly not falling into lawlessness, but they were steeped in a works righteousness uh, legalism, you know, earn your own salvation. And so the fear, of course, when the Reformers started saying sola gratia, no, it's grace alone that we're saved by, of course, the fear of the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about uh, the, the religious authorities' intent on controlling people freaked out. Because historically speaking, Christ alone is bad business for those who, who religious leaders want to control people. It was bad for the Pharisees, it was bad in the Reformation, it's bad today. And so uh, really the, 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 two, the two gutter balls are uh, lawlessness and legalism. But a lot of people during the time of the Reformation and today thought that God's grace was a ditch, was a gutter, which it isn't. You see, God's grace, by which alone we are saved, is the only thing that can rescue the legalist and the lawless person out of their respective gutters, as the apostles taught it, which is what we're going to look at today. The text uh, for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 
<clears throat> so we don't want to commit the same errors today that were made 500 years ago and say we're scared of preaching grace alone. So let's try and balance grace out uh, with the law and mix them together into this confusing gospel cocktail. We don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to uh, live and aim to glorify the Father united inseparably to the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit on a liberating, narrow road that Jesus called gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. The good news of the gospel, church, is that not only was God's grace necessary, God's grace is enough. That's the good news of the gospel. That uh, apart from all of our works, the goodness of God, the kindness of God is enough to save us. And so this morning I'm going to defend this doctrine of grace alone. And as I do, uh, we're going to touch on, on uh, some of the things that the, that the early church wrestled with and that the apostles wrestled with. Because humbly we don't want to repeat those things today. And uh, the reason is because at the time of the Reformation... Um, Every time you talked this way about grace being sufficient, the church in Rome said, but what about James? Because there's a very famous passage in James. Those of you who are here who might be new to the scriptures, maybe you're here and you're not even a Christian, you're exploring faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in a journey, a spiritual journey. You've probably even heard the phrase I'm about to say from James. Where James famously says, in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. I mean, many people, whether they're churched or not churched, have heard that. Faith without works is dead. So every time the 500 years ago the Reformers were saying, we're saved by grace alone, and this passage that I just read you is very overt, we're saved by grace alone. The, the, the response from the legalist heart that wants to contribute to the gospel all says, but what about James? James says, faith without works is dead. So this morning, I'm going to unpack all this. And I hope that it serves you. I hope that it encourages you. I hope that it lifts your heart this Thanksgiving weekend. And I hope that you can take this and teach it to your children so that they grow up in the liberating love and grace of, of, uh, of God together. So in James chapter 2, verses 14 and 26, these two verses, I'm just going to read them quickly. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works? 
Can that faith save him? And then in verse 26, For as the body is apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So now what happened was, they put Paul and James into the ring to have a theological rumble in the jungle. Are you ready? And they just like, let's have these apostles fight. I mean, obviously there's two different things being said here. Paul's all about grace alone, and James is saying faith without works is dead. Oh, they disagree. We have this conflict. We have this problem. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consolidate it this morning, but we, we need to understand that this was, this was why the Reformation was what, what it was, which is essentially it split the church. So I'm going to unpack all of this later. And I want you to also consider that the church, back when the Reformation was happening in 1517, they didn't have the, they didn't have the scriptures. And even if they did have them, they would have been in Latin at the time because everything hot off the Gutenberg press was in Latin. So it's not like they could listen to the teaching and go home and read it for themselves. They couldn't even do that. Luther didn't translate the Bible into German until 1522. So five years had passed. They, they couldn't go home. You can go home and fact check everything I say. And I invite you to do that. Right? But they couldn't do that. So we're going to come back to this a little bit later in the sermon. But here's today's sermon in the sentence. It's that God's grace is absolutely necessary. God's grace is entirely sufficient. And God's grace is increasingly liberating. So first let's look at why it's necessary. It's necessary because in the first three verses I just read there, it says that we're born dead in sin. There's a showstopper right there. Is there anything more offensive in today's culture than to be told you're not okay? There's nothing worse you could say to a person in 2017 than you're not all right. You're not, what you're up to isn't, this isn't good. You could, there's no way you could say that today without causing radical offense. But where does the gospel begin? The word gospel in the Greek evangelion is, it means good news. Where does the good news begin? It begins with horrible news. It says you're dead. You're born dead. There's a problem, an insurmountable problem, because dead people can't resurrect themselves. This is where the whole thing begins. But the way that Rome talked about grace 500 years ago, and the way that a lot of churches today... So, by the way, let's not puff our chests out and say those silly Catholics, because scores of Protestant churches today talk about grace precisely the way we're just as guilty of talking about it the way that, that the Catholic Church did in the, in, in the 1500s. And so uh, what they, the way they talked about grace was, well, it's like... I'll use an example from Michael Horton. He talks about it this way. They talked about it like it's like coffee. You wake up in the morning, and you've got all these things you've got to do. I mean, and you could do them. But when you have that coffee, you just do them better. When you read the 1545 Council of Trent, and I invite you if you're ever having difficulty sleeping, read the 1545 Council of Trent, the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation in 1517. And they, they went to great lengths to say, listen, um, grace is something that's infused into you so that you can keep a law. That's the way that they talked about it. It's like coffee. I mean, you, you could do it, but grace it just really propels it. As, imagine the problem that that created then. Imagine the problem that creates today. Our message to our neighbors and to the city is not, hey, we know you're, you're up to good stuff, but come to God, and then you're really going to be... I mean, I know that you want to have a great marriage, but come to Jesus, and then it's really going to be a great marriage. I know you want to be successful in your business, but come, and then God's grace infuses you. This is the way they talked about it. And then you... You're really going to be... So the Catholic Church had an idea about grace that was like a caffeine shot, like having a Christ espresso. And the, the reformers were like, wait a second, no. That's not, grace isn't like this caffeine shot that enables you to keep the law. Grace is a gift 
that is imputed to you, that is outside you, that comes to you, that rescues is in Christ, who perfectly kept the law. Because you can't keep the law. You need someone to keep it for you. This is how the reformers wrestled with this. Verses 1 to 3 say, we're dead in sin. Now, maybe you're new uh, to the, the, the church or um, Christian faith, and you, you hear this word sin, and you say, well, you know, these Christians, they just walk around dragging their knuckles, they think they're worms, they talk about themselves like they're sinners. I want, you, I want to clear something up for you that's really important. When the Bible talks about sin and calls us sinners, which we are, Saved by grace, of course, when we're united to Christ. But when the Bible talks about that and says we're all born dead in sin, saying, saying we're sinners is not an intensive claim. It's not an intensive statement. I'm sorry, it's not saying you are intensely bad. It is saying you are extensively lost. When the Bible says everybody's born dead in sin, it doesn't mean that humanity is the worst version of itself. Right? So if the, if the church, which we have, let's face it, we're so guilty of this, if we have seen ourselves as we're the good people and the world is the bad people, right? then what's going to happen is we don't have much to say to our neighbors. We're not going to do evangelism because we're like, well, they, my neighbors seem to have a marriage that's you know, comparable to ours or even healthier than ours. How can I talk to them about the gospel? They seem to be banging on all cylinders. See, because we're thinking about it like good and bad. When the, when the scriptures teach that we are born dead in sin, that is not an intensive statement. It's an extensive claim, saying everybody's lost, nobody can save themselves. This is the condition that we're all born into because of Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden. And so that's why in verse 2, Paul uses these words. He says, uh, you know, I read it earlier. He says that the devil is the prince of the air. We are sons of disobedience. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like saying all of us in this room, our bodies are contaminated simply because we live on planet earth and there's toxins in the air that all of us are breathing so when the bible says you're born dead in sin it's saying sin is extensive there's no part of us that it doesn't touch and we're in desperate need of grace grace is necessary so the church back in rome was talking about it like well grace is grace of god is something that gets you started jesus christ's work at the cross was like critical uh or sorry it was important but not critical because you adding your work to grace is the hinge that's really going to... It's the tipping point on salvation. So it's like Jesus got you started, and you're going to take it the rest of the way. But Paul says, no, 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 we're born dead. That's an extensive claim on humanity. doesn't mean that we are better than our neighbors. We are not. We are found, and they are lost. And so uh, it gives us this uh, picture, and then it says that we're sons of disobedience, which, is a, which makes us think about how we're, we're born of Adam, so we're born in this state of absolutely needing grace. So the, Paul starts this, which is so offensive at the time. It's so offensive today because we want to hear somebody reflect back to us what we already believe and what we already think to ourselves. We want somebody to tell us, yeah, you are okay. We don't want somebody to say you're dead. You're in need of something that you're incapable of. So before the gospel gets to the good news, it gets to this shocking news. It deconstructs us before it liberates us. But it does liberate us. This is, the, this is where... Um, the gospel goes and so uh, and so as uh, Paul unpacks this passage for us what we find is that without God's grace we would continue on a trajectory of not needing him perceiving that we need him continue on a trajectory of saying I don't need God I'm going to be God and of course the great irony of living life and saying I don't need God or I don't believe that there is God 
I'm essentially living like I am God. The the great irony of that is that everybody ends up worshiping little gods. And everybody wakes up and says to themselves, what am I going to live for? What is my life really about? What is my meaning? What is my purpose? Really, what's waking you up in the morning and driving you? Whatever Whatever the answer to that is, that is your little G God. And all of us are, have this uh, crevice in our soul that is God-shaped that can only be truly filled by being renewed and restored by his grace. So God's grace is absolutely necessary because we're all born with stillborn souls. And we're just going to keep worshiping little things. We just will. And so God's grace is absolutely necessary, but let's move on to the second thing, which is the great news. God's grace is entirely, entirely sufficient. In verse 4, Paul contrasts all this with this great contrast. He says, you're born dead. And then in verse 4, he says, but God. Those two words, but God. It's like the heartbeat of the gospel summarized down into two words. This was your trajectory, but God in his great grace, he comes and he interrupts this uh, trajectory. And Paul is actually blown away. And in the English, uh, we don't catch it because of the way that our language goes. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the Greek here. Paul chooses a very specific word order so that that original uh, audience reading this in the Greek would see all these huge juxtapositions, right? We, when we translate it in English, it's faithful and good and true, but we lose a little bit of Paul's intentionality. Here's what he says. He's like, you're dead. God's rich. In Christ, you're alive. That's what would jump out to the Greek audience if they read verse 4. Dead, rich, alive in Christ, right? And the reason why he gives this picture, he, so Paul is contrasting deadness with riches, which speaks to the sufficiency of God's grace. He's got everything that we need. He's got everything that we require. And so uh, the goodness of God in Jesus Christ is not a starter kit, but it is absolutely sufficient. And so therefore we live freely for him. And so the goodness of the gospel, as Paul unpacks it here in Ephesians chapter 2, is it gives us our verdict before our performance. Nothing else in your life works that way. Not work, not relationships, not marriage, not children. Nothing else works like that, like that. Where you get the verdict of acceptance before the performance. But in God, in the gospel, that's precisely what we get. His grace is sufficient and it propels something in us. I want you to think about it this way. You kids that are in the service, some of you guys are going to be enjoying Thanksgiving dinner, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. We're going to get together with, you're going to have Thanksgiving dinner. Imagine a small child at a Thanksgiving dinner And as they're enjoying the Thanksgiving dinner, they say, oh, this Thanksgiving dinner is so good. And after the Thanksgiving dinner, they walk up to their room and they get out their little piggy bank and they shake it, and a couple little coins fall out. And they take those coins and they go down and they say, thanks, mom and dad, for that Thanksgiving dinner. And they, and they, uh, they contribute to the dinner. You know, they, they, they put a couple coins in their parent's hand. And then what the parent does is the parent goes, you're welcome, and pockets the change and keeps it. Nobody in here thinks that's a good story. Nobody in here likes that ending. But in 1517, Rome was saying, hey, Jesus did a great thing that you can be thankful for, but now you need to live your life in such a way that you, you know, thank him for it, 
which of course erases all of your assurance because you're like, am I being thankful enough? Who really knows? Paul is hammering and pushing grace to the limit so that there's no room for us to say, well, I guess I got to go and get some pocket change and live live a good life in such a way that I'm somehow paying for this Thanksgiving dinner that I'm, that I'm enjoying. That's not how it works. Um, there's these two Greek scholars who work, work with uh, Greco-Roman um, uh, manuscripts, you know, not just the Bible, but just from the ancient world. Their names are, uh, are uh, Moulton and Milligan. And when I was studying Greek, we looked at these guys, and one of the things that we saw was they recovered these old documents, things like marriage certificates, uh, divorce certificates, um, uh, legal, uh, legal documents like tax papers or census papers, these kinds of things, judicial proceedings, and a lot of them had a phrase uh, you know, written on them or stamped on them, and that phrase was a Greek word, tetelestai. Many, some of you who've been in church for a while know this. If you're new to, new to the church, this Greek phrase, tetelestai, in English, is paid in full, or it is finished. The last words of Christ at the cross were, it's paid in full. And that was a, tetelestai was a very commonly used phrase in the Greco-Roman world that meant the debt is paid. And so Paul is pushing this, pushing this, pushing this to the end. And again, like I said, if you're having trouble sleeping one night and you want to read the 1545 Council of Trent, the response to the Reformation, they very specifically said in there, hey, listen, whoever thinks that grace and faith in Christ alone is sufficient for assurance, let him be anathema. Or be, let him be cursed. That's the, the response. That erases, of course, all of our insurance because how many of us are doing enough? And the answer is nobody. And so Paul is pushing this. Not only is God's grace uh, necessary, it is absolutely, without question, sufficient. And so we know that because God saved us while we were still sinners, God does not abandon us when we sin. And therefore we know but the life that we live as believers, the desire to live to the glory of God, is that the, the response to this grace is a desire to increasingly forsake our sin. Not because that's what the gospel is, but that that's precisely what the gospel does. And so Paul is explaining this. He, he, Paul says, your, your love and good works were not the basis for receiving God's grace, therefore our love and good works cannot be the basis for keeping God's grace. Verses 8 and 9 say this was apart from works. And Paul very intentionally says it's apart from work so that nobody can boast. Nobody can say, I contributed. So let's just zoom out for a second. Let's think about the guy who wrote this. Who was he and how did he get saved? The Apostle Paul. He's on his way to kill the church, right? When he stops and reflects on his life and he had an epiphany and he turns to God and he says, oh, no, that's not how the story goes. Acts chapter 9, you can read it. The Damascus Road is very famous. Paul has no intention of turning. Paul is not thinking about turning. Paul is not exercising his, you know, uh, 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 that good part inside him. You know, he's not humbling himself and he's not reaching deep down. He's just going to kill the church. And God in his great grace interrupts Paul's life, knocks him off his high horse, and saves him by grace alone. And you may be here and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's a pretty extreme story. None of us in here have extreme stories like that. I want to press something on you here. Verse 8 and 9 teaches us that all of us have a different version of that precise story. All of us, like Paul, were not looking for God whenever we came to faith in Christ. God 
God's grace came and found us and interrupted our lives in some way. All of us get knocked off of our theological high horses, all of us. All of us at some point in our life look and see and with an awareness of the goodness of God. Even you kids who are in here, are you going to grow up and at some point in your life, if you haven't already have it, but you're going to at some point, you're going to look back and you're going to say, this is incredible, the grace and the love of God for me. This gospel is amazing. All of us have a different version of Paul's story. God doesn't save people different ways. He saves us all the same way using different vehicles. And we're saved the same way by grace alone. And can I encourage you if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Christ and you, you couldn't say, I'm a Christian, I've been baptized into Christ. I mean, you're in a journey, you're exploring, you have questions. Can I encourage you and, and, and provoke you to consider something this morning? You being here, you listening to this right now, This is God's great providential love and grace being extended toward you. You are sitting here today hearing this gospel because God's great undeserved grace and love is being extended toward you as you're sitting here. It is him providentially drawing you. I know you think you got up because you decided to come with a friend or however it all worked, but I I just need you to know God in his great grace extending his love toward you. Grace alone apart from works. And so when he talked this way, the church freaks out historically. They say, whoa, this is a gutter ball, man. People are going to just, this is going to end up in a wheels-off sin fest. Well, inevitably, there's always some uh, who, who, who do precisely that and go off and say, oh, good, well, grace means I can live however I want, and in the end, I'm saved anyways, so it really doesn't matter. And that's not the gospel. That's not, that's not God's grace, and that's not what the Scripture's taught. So let's get back to James now. And this conflict, this theological cage match where James says, where I'm, here I am spending a lot of energy telling you you're saved by grace alone, and James says faith without works is dead. So how do we consolidate this then? How do we understand this? Well, first of all, um, I think it's important to realize that Paul and James were dealing with two completely different problems. When Paul was saying grace alone, you know, in his whole letter to the Galatians, Paul was dealing with legalists who kept on wanting to add to grace. James is dealing with lawless people who don't understand grace. And they're like, yeah. Oh, blessed condition. Live how I want and enjoy sin's remission. And James goes, that faith won't save you. That's not saving faith. I'll, I'll prove it to you. James chapter 2, when you look, if, if you're to read it, you're going to find James says this. This is how the whole thing starts. People always jump in and go, well, what about James? What about the word? He says, you're justified by works. What about faith without works is dead? Yeah, but before, though, in verse 14, this is how James starts. He says, you say you have faith? Paul is dealing with the basis of our justification. James is dealing with our claim that we're justified. James says, you say you have faith and you have no works? And then he goes on, he says that faith is, and then he goes on to say, that faith, emphasis, that kind of thing you're describing, that you think is grace, is a gutter ball. James says, that faith won't save you. So in the one ditch, we've got the gutter balls of legalism where the church goes, we don't want people to run off and do whatever they want, so quick, let's add the law to the gospel. Which is crazy because Paul says, no. If we preach Christ and if the church enjoys and revels in Christ, that is going to produce an increased desire to live to the glory of Christ. 
And then James is dealing with people on the other side that are going, woohoo, let's do whatever we want. And James goes, that's not, that's not saving faith. It just isn't. Neither legalism nor lawlessness are saving faith. And I'm going to prove this to you. In Acts chapter 15, if you read it, there's a council and all the apostles get together to agree on the gospel. And Paul and James are there and Paul and James agree. All the apostles agreed on the gospel and they left. So if you take Paul and take James and go, oh no, we have a conflict, let's put them in a cage match and make them fight and see who wins. Or, oh, we're too confused, we're worried that the church is going to run off and do crazy things. So lest they think that grace says they can do whatever they want, let's just keep hammering works. Do you see this problem? Both of those are errors. And the reformers in the, in, the, in the 1500s were saying, whoa, 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 we can't put these guys together. Right? We, can't do, we, we can't do this. So the critical thing for you to understand, and kids, those of you kids who are in here to understand, is that James is not adding works to faith. James insisted that works are the inevitable byproduct of faith. And that's what he was doing. And so this is the, uh, the, the picture that we get. So think about this now. When James says that faith without works is dead, and Paul is saying, by grace alone you're saved, but through faith, lest anybody can boast, and we've got these two things, how do we consolidate them? What do we do when we've got a, 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 a Christian, a friend, a, a relative, a brother, somebody here in Redeemer, who is claiming, oh yeah, my faith is in Christ. And their life demonstrates, I have no desire for obedience to Jesus. What do we do with that? If we're in the gutter of legalism, we're going to try and solve their faith problem with works. We're going to look at a person and go, I don't think, I don't think you seem to be living the life that, that a Christian should live. So the way we should solve this is hammer you with, a, with demanding more works. But their problem is that they don't have faith. That's the problem. So what do we do with the person who's demonstrating no faith? Well, you can't be saved by works, so the conversation has to be about the gospel. This is a person that doesn't understand Jesus. This is a person who doesn't understand grace. This is a person who doesn't understand what they've been given. Maybe this is a person who lived their whole life getting slammed over the head with the Bible, beaten to death by legalism, and so they did the very natural human thing to do, which is to go into the other gutter and throw a gutter ball into lawlessness. What is our response to this? It's to go back to the gospel, because that's what they need. Saving faith is by grace alone. So we're really dealing with somebody who doesn't understand grace. So this is what we're, this is what we're given, and this is how we consolidate these two things. So I'm going to um, uh, borrow from Richard Lenski, who's a Greek scholar, and he wrote these exegetical commentaries in 1964, and he wrote on this text here in Ephesians 2 that I'm preaching, and this is what he said. He said, Ephesians 2 reveals that faith is not something we produce on our part and direct it toward our salvation. Faith is a gift that is produced in our hearts by God in grace to accomplish his purpose of salvation. Faith simply rests on and acknowledges who Christ is and what Christ has produced. And I'm going to close with this. God's grace is absolutely necessary. God's grace is entirely sufficient. And last thing before we walk out the door is that God's grace is increasingly liberating. Where does this whole thing go? The beginning of the letter says, here's what you were saved from. Verse 10, you look at verse 10, it says, this is what you were saved for. We were saved from something for something. He says you were saved not by good works. He says you were saved for 
good works. In other words, when God saved us in grace, he wasn't like, okay, you're saved from your sin, have at her. Because that's not freedom. Every single one of us would just go right back into our cells and shut the doors behind us. Every single one of us would. And so what Paul does is he says, we're saved for good works. But I mean, what does that mean? What does God want? This is where we say, ah, I knew it. Paul's been talking about grace. And you get to the end, and here it is. It's going to be the bait and switch. And he's going to tell us all these things that God wants. Let, let, let's understand how liberating these good works are. I need to reframe this for you because a lot of us think about God and think about good works the way that the Babylonian uh, uh, creation myth in the Enuma Elish talks about the gods who created things. In the Enuma Elish, in the Babylonian creation myth, the gods want a temple, the gods want things, so the gods create people to do the work. And so we think, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that probably the God of the Bible is the same way. He created the earth. He's got all this stuff he wants to do, so he created us to do the work. And so here, Ephesians 2.10 seems to be saying, aha, see, God's got a laundry list of things he wants you to do. It's a bait and switch. He saves you by grace, so you can do all this work. But we need to reframe our understanding of work. We need to understand. Notice what Paul does. He says, how does he describe you? He says, you are his workmanship. Paul chooses a word to basically make the, the, the Greeks and us who are reading this go, I'm God's product. I'm a product. Those of you who are in business, you have a product. You create the product. The product is supposed to do certain things. It flourishes when it does what it was supposed to do. How many of you students would go and spend $600 on a smartphone and then realize one day you didn't have a hammer and use your smartphone to hang something up in your room? Nobody. Because that would not be a good work. That would be an abuse of the purpose for which the thing was created. So when Paul says you were created for good works, he's inviting us to think, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually invited into a, a liberating life with God. How do I think about these good works? He didn't save you because he needs you. He saved you because he loves you. He didn't save you because he needs something from you. He saved you because he wants life with you. That's the picture in Genesis. That's the picture in Revelation. And we're in between. Enjoying this life with God. What are these good works that he's after? What does he want? What does this workmanship mean? God raises our souls from a state of deadness toward him into a state of enjoyment with him. And that enjoyment of God by grace alone carries with it an expulsive power that creates new affections in our hearts. It, 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 God's uh, good work in us, the good works in us and through us are a result of God's grace liberating us from our disordered desires and bringing our hearts into congruence with what God desires. When the sun shines, it's doing a good work. When the bird flies, it's doing a good work. When the fish swims, when the waves crash, they're doing good works because they're simply being what they were created to be. And when you and I enjoy our God and love one another, and use our gifts in the city with whatever it is that God has put inside you, loving him and worshiping him, it's good work. Because you're simply being God's child. You're simply being who he's created you to be. Your heart is at rest. You can finally do good work because whatever work you're up to isn't defining you. Apart from God, apart from his grace, guess what your work is? Your identity. But you've been saved for good works. You've got your identity in as God's child. And now you're able to do uh, these beautiful good works as his workmanship. God's grace is necessary. God's grace is sufficient. And God's grace, church, is liberating. Let's pray.